Hey, this is Dr. Norton. Welcome to Cymbeline, lecture number one. Cymbeline is one of Shakespeare's final plays. It was composed, we believe, and performed 1609 and 1610 for the first time. It was performed indoor at the Black Friars stage rather than at the more famous Globe. Cymbeline is a play in the same kind of category or, or subgenre, you might say, as Pericles, The Winter's Tale, and The Tempest. We've, we've uh, gone over The Tempest already this semester, and the next play actually is The Winter's Tale. These plays, this family of plays, this grouping is called, they're part of what's called the late plays, Shakespeare's late plays. They're also um, referred to as the romances or sometimes even as tragic comedies. There is no source really well known for Cymbeline, uh, but there are a few kind of source ideas that, have, that are kind of going around among critics even today. Um, there's an author, Giovanni Boccaccio, a writer from the 14th century, an Italian poet and scholar, uh, best remembered as the author and uh, of the early uh, the tales in, in a text called the Decameron, um, with Petrarch, um, Boccaccio laid the foundations of the of, of humanism of the humanism of the Renaissance. So Boccaccio is kind of an important figure. So um, how does he figure in? Well, uh, we think uh, critics believe that Shakespeare read uh, Boccaccio in the original Italian, um, but some also think that he may have read the translation by William Painter, which would have been retold in the Palace of Pleasures text in 1575. Painter was an English clerk and he gathered his collection of pleasant histories and excellent novellas from authors like Bandello, Livy, and Marguerite of Navarre, in addition to Boccaccio. So um, the Boccaccio story uh, in the Decameron has, has a character that is much like this character in Cymbeline named Yachmo, or Yachmo. So there are, some, there are some ideas like that going around in terms of influence, uh, there are a couple of critics uh, that I enjoy and respect quite, quite, quite a lot, uh, named Robin Moffat and Robert Miola, um, and they say that Shakespeare intends for Cymbeline to symbolize the movement from pagan from the pagan world to a Christian world. The birth of Christ lines up with Cymbeline's reign, uh, which ushers in a whole new Christian era through the play. Um, perhaps some of the elements uh, emphasizing the nature of redemption uh, newly portrayed in Reformation literature are being worked through in this play as well. Um, but let's take a look at the play itself on page, well, page 7. Uh, this is the opening of the play. So Act 1, Scene 1. We don't normally refer to plays by page numbers, but um, I'm working from the, let's see, what is this? This is the Folger Shakespeare Library Edition of the play. Act 1, Scene 1 begins in this way. You do not meet a man but frowns. Our bloods no more obey the heavens than our courtiers still seem as does the king's. These are two gentlemen talking. The second gentleman says, but what's the matter? The first gentleman says, his daughter and the heir of his kingdom, whom he purposed to be his wife's sole son, a widow that late he married hath referred herself unto a poor but worthy gentleman. She's wedded, her husband banished, she imprisoned. All is outward sorrow, though I think the king be touched at very heart. None but the king? 
he that hath lost her too. So is the queen that most desired the match, but not a courtier. Although they wear their faces to the bent of the king's looks, hath a heart that is not glad at the thing they scowl at. And why so? He that hath missed the, the princess is a thing too bad for bad report. And he that hath her, I mean, that married her, alack, good man, and therefore banished. Okay, so let me pause here real fast. I, I like the way this thing starts. I got a little carried away there. Um, the, the, these two gentlemen are talking about a problem, right? They're, they're giving us some details. We enter this play, as you might say, in medias race, in the middle of things, in the middle of the action in many ways. This is how Shakespeare starts a lot of plays. And so what these two guys are doing are giving us some backstory, right? They're having a conversation about how things are. And we have to kind of fill in the gaps. And so what we see here is that things are not well right now in the kingdom. There has been some dramatic events that have taken place. And one is that someone's been banished. Someone imposthumous, posthumous has been banished. There has been a, a wedding, right? The king's wife um, died. He is a widow, widower, and he has remarried a woman who is also a widow. And the king's new wife, his second wife, has a son. And the king would like his stepson to marry his daughter. Now, we haven't been giving any names of these characters yet, but, but as you know, since you've read some of the play already, uh, that the king's daughter's name is Imogen. And her stepbrother, or the stepson of the king, Clotin. Um, and so what's being said here by these two gentlemen, they're speaking quite honestly and uh, forthrightly and uh, perhaps in some ways um, rudely, I suppose. But they just say, you know, this, this stepson, Clotin, is not impressive. He, uh, he is too bad for bad report. Uh, he is he's not a good man. But then they turn and they say, but posthumous, this one that has married her, illegally. The king did not approve of his daughter's marriage to posthumous. But posthumous, as these two gentlemen say, he goes on here, right? Act 1, scene 1, line 22. He is such a creature as to seek through the regions of the earth for one his like. There would be something failing in him that should compare. I do not think so fair and outward and such stuff within endows a man, but he. That's some high praise. The other guy even says it. You speak him far. The first gentleman responds, I do extend him, sir, within himself. He says, oh, I don't, I'm not even exaggerating. I'm just saying this, this is obvious when you meet this guy posthumous. This is obvious when you see him. And he goes on, crush him together rather than unfold his measure duly. Uh, so it's just the praise. He can't give this guy um, posthumous Leonatus enough praise. He is the, the man that Imogen has married. Now, who is this guy? Posthumous Leonatus is, a, is an outsider. He's not part of the royal family. But he grew up in the kingdom. He grew up in Cymbeline's castle. Cymbeline, the title character, is the king. And Cymbeline took in Posthumus as a boy, as a baby, when his mother and father died. They were, they were gone. He was orphaned. 
And so the king chose to raise Posthumus, but he's not related to the king. He's not related to the royal court. This was just an act of mercy that Cymbeline had upon this baby. Um, we don't get a whole lot of detail of why, um, why the uh, king adopted this boy. Uh, it just kind of goes through the fact that he did in this first act. Um, he took him, took the babe to his protection, called him Posthumus Leonatus, breeds him and makes him of his bedchamber, puts him, puts to him all the learnings that his time could make him the receiver of, which he took as we do heir, fast as twas ministered, and in his spring became a harvest, lived in court, which is which rare it is to do, most praised, most loved, a sample to the youngest, to the more mature, a glass that feeded them, and to the graver a child that guided daughters, or daughters, to his mistress for whom he now is banished, her own price proclaims how she esteemed him and his virtue by her election may be truly read what kind of man he is. Now, there's, there's some compliment right there for Imogen because this man is saying that she, that she is of phenomenal or fantastic character herself. So, we don't know why the king adopted other than the fact that this was an act of mercy. Um, he, he saw that this was a, an orphan child um, and... So he took in Posthumus Leonatus and raised him in his castle, raised him in the royal court. And as these guys say, he took what he was taught and he made a harvest out of it. I like that, that phrase, right? He took um, fast as fast as what was ministered and in his spring became a harvest. So as fast as they fed him education and manners and as fast as they taught him, he took it, learned it, and extended it. He made a harvest out of his education. I hope you're doing that. I hope that your college experience is one like that, right? I, I am your professor. I give you this material. I give you these lectures. We talk through these plays, but then you take them and you make something even better from them than what I gave you. That is the ideal situation, right? That's the most ideal way to get a college education. Not to sit around, punch through the numbers, just barely get through, and then grab your degree and go, um, you really haven't become much better if that's the way you're doing it, right? Ideally, you're taking these materials to the heart, to heart, and you're learning and growing, and you're thinking about big issues that surround us as, as human beings. The quality of every nation it really depends upon the quality of its leaders, the quality of its people, of the populace. And so... As an educator, my, my hope and, and my, my purpose for doing what I'm doing is, is not only because I like literature, but because I believe that literature has a way of shaping people for the better. And as you take this, this idea into your heart, as you look at these plays, and as you look at this, this great literature of the ages, and you, and you begin to, to think about uh, these ideas, these tensions, and these themes, um, the ways that these authors are talking about humanity, marriage, education, leadership, truth, and beauty, goodness. Um, I believe that you'll be a better person. And if you're a better person, then you'll vote like a more wise citizen. You will critique the government in proper ways, and you will lead others to do the same, and, and we will have a very strong society or a stronger society. Um, I believe even today we are benefiting from the strength of, of the minds of those who have come before us.
and um, and I want to be a part of of fashioning and forming the next generation of, of great thinkers and leaders. And so that's who Posthumus Leonidas is, right? He was ministered to, he was educated, and as he took it in, he created a harvest of ideas, of new thoughts, of new ideas, and he was able to feed others and challenge others and, and, and spur others into greatness, as it says in the play, Act 1, Scene 1. That's line 55 or so. So the opening of this play, there's problems in the kingdom, and yet, in the midst of the problems, these two characters, Posthumus Leonatus and Symbol, I'm sorry, and Imogen, are praised. These are young people of great promise. So in some ways, they counteract, they counterbalance some of the bad news that's going on in the kingdom itself. While the kingdom is in turmoil, we have these two young people. Although they're banished, or the Posthumus Leonatus is banished, um, but there's still some promise there. Whenever you have young people of promise, there is hope for the future. And this is often used in literature symbolically, right? The young are hope for the future. So, but what about this, this problem? Well, how does Posthumus get into trouble? Well, he marries Imogen, and he insists upon being with her. And in his insistence, this makes the king, Cymbeline, angry. The, the marriage between these two was done in secret, and here King Cymbeline still is trying to get his daughter Imogen to marry Clotin. And so he cannot get very far with this plan if Posthumus Leonatus is still hanging around. And so uh, we don't see that all happen. We don't see the banishment happen. Um, we just see kind of the moments afterward. Um, we don't even know what grounds he banishes him on. Uh, we just know he's not welcome in the kingdom anymore. This fantastic young man who impressed all of his teachers and who was the top of his class, who was an inspiration to the young and a challenge to the older um, kids in his class. So it's being built up so so highly that we can't help but conclude that King Cymbeline is missing something. Are you seeing that? I mean, that's kind of obvious, right? The, the praise for Posthumus Leonatus, the praise for his character his intellect, and his very person is so over-the-top high and elevated that one can only think if he's banished, then something's wrong with the one who's doing the banishing. And that's kind of what we, what we see at the beginning of this play. Something is wrong here. Uh, much like there was something wrong in Denmark in, in Hamlet, the play Hamlet. Same thing here. There is something gravely wrong here. Something, something is troubled uh, if, if a guy like this is being banished. Um, and then there's this second issue going on here that's, that's, that's referred to next that um, one of the gentlemen says, Ah, Imogen, his only child. No, no, no. She is not the sole child of the king. Line 63. Um, no, he had two sons. And then he says, if this be worth your hearing, mark it, the eldest of them at three years old, in the swathing clothes the other from their nursery were stolen. And to this hour, no guess in knowledge which way they went. How long is this ago? Some 20 years ago. 
that a king's children should be so conveyed, so slackly guarded, and the search so slow that could not trace them. So they, this is revealing the fact that the king had two other children, two boys. They were kidnapped when they were just babies in swaddling clothes, uh, not even three years old. And then there's a, an immediate criticism. How could this happen? How could the king's children be so slackly guarded? How could they be so poorly looked after? That doesn't make any sense, so the guy says. And he responds, Howsoever tis strange, or that the negligence may well be laughed at, yet is it true, sir? I do well believe you. And so they say, yeah, that's one more issue that's going on in this kingdom. One more strike, if you will, against King Cymbeline. That he has allowed people to come into his kingdom that don't, don't belong there, that are harmful, that are a harmful influence, uh, not only to his children, that kidnapped two of them, but to the kingdom itself. So problems in leadership. And, you know, many of Shakespeare's play, plays deal with this, this idea of authority. Authority is a very important thing in Shakespeare plays often. What is good authority? What is... What is, um, yeah, what is the nature of good authority? What does a good leader look like? And, um, and that, that's something that, that Shakespeare really works with quite frequently. Here, you have, um, you have uh, a king who is an absentee king who was absent upon the kidnapping of his own sons. And then it seems he was absent um, upon his, his daughter's love affair with this wonderful young gentleman, Posthumus Leonatus. The king has no idea what his daughter loves. And that's what we're going to see in the next scene. Um, the queen enters in the next scene, actually, and she's talking to Imogen and Posthumus, and, uh, and they don't buy her, her BS. She is uh, she's a weirdo, and they recognize it, right? They recognize that uh, she's, she's kind of odd. Um, and so they kind of blow her off a little bit, and so right away, again, we see her authority that is undermined or her authority that is kind of empty and foolish. She is a fool. And, and, and great leaders in Shakespeare are never fools. They are aware. They are smart. There's a humility. There's a courage to them. There is knowledge and understanding. And this King Cymbeline and his new wife lack that knowledge and understanding. They lack that courage. They lack insight. And so here we have... Imogen with Cymbeline having a conversation, sorry, Imogen and Posthumus having a conversation about how much they love each other and how sad it is they have to part. And who comes in? But Cymbeline. And he comes in with these words. And these are the first words the king, the title character, speaks. The first words that a title character speech speaks in a play are usually worth noting, worth kind of looking at closely. And he says this, Thou basest thing, avoid hence from my sight. If after this command thou fraught the court with thy unworthiness, thou diest away. Thou art poison to my blood. So, how many lines have we read so far? That's, that's line 147. So, we have read or heard one, over 100, almost 150 lines of the play so far that has done what? That has praised and supported Posthumus Leonatus as a man of noble character, as a wise, honorable young man. And we've had, <clears throat> let's see, at least three characters affirm that or confirm the fact that Posthumus Leonatus is a wise, honorable young man. 
And what do we see from the king? <clears throat> the king contradicts all that we've just learned. The king's vision and understanding are exposed, are um, revealed for their lack, if you will. Um, it's been, like I said, it's been very, very clear that Posthumus Leonidas is, a, is an upsetting young man, but the king clearly misunderstands and does not see him for who he really is. And he calls him a base thing. He calls him unworthy. He calls him a poison to his blood. How does Posthumus respond? The gods protect you and bless the good remainders of the court. I am gone. So again, Posthumus' response, is again, is one of character, one of good character, good breeding, polite, respectful. And Imogen says to her dad, there cannot be a pinch in death more sharp than this is. Symbolists comment to her, O disloyal thing, that shouldst repair my youth, thou heaps a year's age on me. You're, you're stressing me out, he says to her. He calls her disloyal, but she's obviously not that. She says, I beseech you, sir, harm not yourself with your vexation. I am senseless of your wrath. A touch more rare subdues all pangs, all fears. I don't understand why you, you have acted this way, she says. I don't understand why you have, you've chosen to see things this way. You are in error, in other words. You see some very, very similar character in a play called King Lear. There's a character in King Lear called, um, called Cordelia. And she is a very faithful daughter to King Lear. And King Lear doesn't realize it either. He is a lot like Cymbeline, kind of blind, prideful, self-centered, selfish. Uh, but most, most of all, just kind of blind and ignorant. Um, Imogen continues. Um, actually, Cymbeline says, That mightst have had the sole son of my, of my queen. <laughs> he says, you, you could have married my queen's son, Clotten. How awesome is he? And she says, Oh, blessed that I might not. I chose an eagle and did avoid a puttock. <laughs> uh, she says, No, I, I, I made the right choice. Posthumus Leonidas is an eagle, a, a powerful, you know, royal bird, and I avoided this puttock, this, this disgusting bird of prey, like a buzzard. A puttock is like a buzzard. And then Cymbeline counters her. Thou took'st a beggar. Wouldst have made my throne a seat for baseness. And her response, I love. No, I rather added a luster to it. That's a great line. In other words, she's saying, by being with Posthumus, by choosing Posthumus, I made the kingdom better. He's not of royal blood. He is not of the royal court. He is not part of the monarchy, but he is so smart and intelligent and so good that his presence here would have made it better. It would have added a luster to it. And that same comment is, is again, supported by the earlier phrases from those two gentlemen. Well, Cymbeline's not, hap not happy to hear that. Oh, thou vile one. And then Imogen says, Sir, it is your fault that I have loved Posthumus. You bred him as my playfellow, and he is a man worth any woman overbuys me almost the sum he pays. And he responds, oh no, you're crazy. And she says, almost, sir. <laughs> crazy in love, in other words, right? Heaven restore me. Would I were a nethered's daughter and Maya Leonatus, our neighbor shepherd's son. And then she weeps. Um, 
But we get a little background there, right? We get a little more background about, about how Posthumus ended up in the castle and how they fell in love, right? He was raised, right, kind of with her in the kingdom. Um, the king bred him as Imogen's playfellow, and so he's there in the kingdom with her. And yet she says that he is is she, he overbuys her, and 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 Cymbeline thinks that she's foolish for saying such a thing. Um, so this is how the play starts, and there, that's some important stuff right there. Uh, there's key issues in the kingdom. There is a clear reason why we we see that Posthumus um, is part of the kingdom, and even why we see kind of Posthumus and Imogen's relationship and how it developed. We get a clear, pretty clear picture of these characters, um, Posthumus Leonatus uh, and Imogen, characters of, of, of high moral aptitude, uh, of great leadership, of knowledge, of understanding, of clarity and boldness. On the other side, we have Cymbeline, the queen, his, his, um, his uh, new wife, and, and Clotin, the son. We haven't seen him yet, but we've been told he's kind of an idiot or just just a kind of a dummy um, and a low character. We're going to see. He's pretty funny, actually. He's kind of stupid and funny. But um, we have these, these clear distinctions in characters, two clear groups that emerged, emerged before us at the very beginning of this play. And, um, and, and as you've been listening to my lectures, you would have known by now that that Shakespeare is, is one that will create key tensions that he wants us to think about. Tensions in issues, but often we see tensions that develop through representative characterization. Representative characterization. This is an idea you should be looking at as you read these plays, right? So Imogen and Posthumus Leonatus are, are really these, these courageous lovers that are loving each other in spite of what others may say or do. Um, the king uh, committing grave errors. Why? Because of his lack of knowledge and understanding, his lack of, of insight, and his disconnectedness. And then a queen who seems to kind of be pushing her own agenda so as to move her son into a place of honor and power. If her son marries Imogen, then you know her line and her generation are, are, are guaranteed great fame and power and, and so forth. So, so the queen is a bit of a conniver as well. And so these, these things become clear to us at the beginning of the play. All right, so what else? We have Posthumus who departs from Britain. Um, he is kicked out. And um, as he goes, he gets into a little fight with Clotin and um, pushes Clotin down and says, get away from me. Clotin tries to act brave, but it's, it's not working, and he's a bit of a, a pansy. Um, we see something break out right away. Act 1, scene 4, this thing called the Italian Wager. Let's go there. Act 1, scene 4. So there's something I like to, I like to look at here in the play, and, and I think this you see this in different Shakespeare plays. It's called the crossing of thresholds. When a character leaves a country and enters into a new country, when a character leaves a relationship or leaves a station in life, a job, a position, um, you can analyze those, those departures as threshold crossings. Think of going from one room into another room, right? You're entering into a whole new space, and that's a symbolic space. So when Posthumus Leonatus leaves Britain or Britannia, he goes to Italy. 
This is a crossing of a threshold. And, and with, with that, with this crossing of thresholds, you often have new challenges, a new atmosphere, new obstacles to overcome, uh, new antagonistic forces. And that is exactly what uh, Posthumus meets. Act 1, scene 4. Uh, if we pick up with, maybe say, line 58, uh, we have Posthumus. And he is, uh, excuse me, he's introduced to some new friends uh, by his own friend who is been traveling there with him, Philario. This is a, a friend of, of Posthumus's father. Philario says, His father and I were soldiers together to whom I have been often bound for no less than my life. Uh, this is a, there's a French term, chanson de geste, uh, this, this connection through battle, this connection through blood ties and so forth. Um, and so this, this friend, Filario, is a family friend, a close family friend of Posthumus. And so he introduces, he introduces Posthumus to his friends in Italy. And so as they begin to talk, a conversation is, is, is spoken about. Um, actually, it's a, it's a conversation that had been happening earlier that they pick up on again. And that conversation is about praise of our country mistresses praise of the women in Britain, praise of the women in Italy. And each man obviously praises the women in his, in his own country highest. <laughs> um, each man says that his to be more fair, virtuous, wise, chaste, constant, qualified, and less attemptable than any uh, the rarest of our ladies in France. That's the Frenchman who says that. That's line 65-ish. Um, well, Yachimo is there, and he's one of the friends that's around. And he says, you know, I don't buy it. There's no, there's no woman in, in Britain that I couldn't get. And this is very crass in many ways, right? Yachimo says, as fair and as good, a kind of hand-in-hand -hand comparison had been something too fair and too good for any lady in Britain. If she went before others I have seen, as that diamond of yours outlusters many I have beheld, I could not but believe she excelled many, but I have not seen the most precious diamond that is, nor you the lady. And, and Postman says, oh yeah, yeah, no, my lady is, is the greatest of all time. She's the goat. Um, and Yachmo is not having it. He says, no, 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 no. If, if, I, if I was given admittance into her company, I bet you that I could, I could convince her to compromise herself with me. And, uh, and Posthumus is offended by this, but the problem here is, and I, and, I, and I interpret this as because he's crossed a threshold, he has left his native country and something has come over him. He has lost his wits in some ways. And so he makes a wager on his wife Imogen's purity. He makes a wager on her character. He makes a wager on her on her body, which is very strange and definitely immoral uh, and upsetting. Uh, and so, let's see here. Yachmo says, by the gods, it is, it is one. If I bring you no sufficient testimony that I have enjoyed the dearest bodily part of your mistress, my 10,000 ducats are yours. So is your diamond too. 
If I come off and leave her in such honor as you have trusted, she your jewel, this your jewel, and my gold are yours, provided I have your commendation for my more free entertainment. And Posthumus is all about it. This is very strange to me. For a man of good character, why would he create a wager on his wife's body? That makes no sense to me. But Posthumus says, I embrace these conditions. Let us have articles betwixt us. Right? Let's draw up the contract. Only thus far you shall answer. If you make your voyage upon her and give me directly to understand you have prevailed, I am no further your enemy. She is not worth our debate. If she remain unseduced, you not making it appear otherwise for your ill opinion and the assault you have made to her chastity, you shall answer me with your sword. So, if she is unseduced um, and you assault her, then I'm going to have to stab you with my sword. But what I will allow you to do, in other words, I will allow you to try to seduce her in a, in a pure uh, way that doesn't involve you touching her or assaulting her in any way. And Yachimo says, you got a deal. And they shake hands. I'm curious about what, you've, what you thought about this, this wager. I find it deeply discouraging. Um, this guy, Posthumus Leonatus, who is this, this praised individual while he's in Britannia, now comes to... Italy, and uh, makes a wager on his wife's own body. Um, it just seems very, very lowbrow and very, um, very poor, uh, poor of poor character of him to do such a thing. Um, but then we have to ask, right? So, what, what is Shakespeare? Um, how is he setting this up for us? What is important about this scenario? There could be something about the crossing of thresholds, the weakening of a man, the weakening of a moral man. He could be saying something about um, the moral weakness of, of all people, even. Um, he, he could be saying something about loyalty, even patriotism, because this really starts with kind of a patriotic vibe, blind patriotism. You know, what happens when we are just blindly and foolishly patriotic? Uh, what does wise patriotism and nationalism look like? Is this a commentary about nationalism or patriotism? Uh, that goes awry. There's lots of things we could, we could, I imagine, surmise about this, this thing. The most important, though, is the fact that Posthumus Leonatus puts his wife in harm's way for a wager, for a bar bet, a bet in a pub. They're in a, they're in a tavern making a bet while taking, you know, drinking and such. And, um, and this definitely is, will get his wife, Imogen, into trouble and, and cause problems for her. Um, all right, we're going to take a little break, and um, you can uh, continue reading, and uh, we'll pick up with lecture two next time. All right, enjoy. Enjoy.